about Jesus saying, who do people think that I am? And the disciples give a bunch of different answers. Like, how is it possible that there was disagreement over who Jesus was? Isn't it painfully clear that if he said the things he said and did the things he did, there's only one possible answer to that question? Well, what if I told you that Jesus wasn't the only person in his day to say that he was the Messiah? What if I told you Jesus wasn't the only person to drum up a following as the hoped-for and prophesied Savior? In fact, what if I told you that Jesus wasn't even the most famous would-be Messiah? That is what we're here to talk about today. And the setting of Jesus' questions, question to the disciples, Caesarea Philippi, couldn't be more important. Caesarea Philippi is located north of the Sea of Galilee in the Golan Heights in modern-day Syria. It housed a natural spring, and after the conquests of Alexander the Great, it was turned into a city shrine to the Greek god Pan. Its location made it a prominent location in the ancient world, as it was a natural rest point for people heading from the Greco-Roman world into the Middle East, Middle or Far East. Twenty years before Christ's birth in, uh, Christ's birth, sorry. In this city, 20 years before Christ's birth, uh, in and the surrounding area were annexed into the land governed by King Herod on behalf of the Romans. King Herod built a massive white marble temple here. When Herod died, his land was split between his three sons, with Caesarea Philippi going to Philip II. Philip II made this city the administrative capital of his holdings. So all this is interesting stuff, right? But it doesn't seem to have anything to do with Jesus and the Messiahs of the first century. Except that it does. In the ancient world, rulers would undertake massive building projects. But they wouldn't spend their own money on these building projects any more than pro sports owners won't spend their own money to build stadiums. Now, just like pro sports owners, rulers in the ancient world would levy a tax on this, their citizens in order to pay for their building projects. They dubbed these public works. But they were more or less vanity projects for the ruler, a way to literally build a legacy. But these taxes could have a devastating impact on the local peasant workers in a town, city, region, or village. Peter II owed a certain amount of money to his Roman benefactors. That's the whole point of an empire, right? You conquer a lot of lands to use their natural resources to fund the imperial machine. Rome wasn't about to make any less money from Philip so that he could build an administrative center. So whenever a ruler underwent a massive building project, it wasn't like the people who uh, otherwise wouldn't have been taxed were now taxed. No, it meant that people who were already taxed in order to pay for Rome would be taxed more to pay Rome and for that white marble. Many farmers, many peasants, many of the working poor were at subsistence level. They were able to make enough that it provided for their family. But that's about it. Perhaps they could provide for their family and pay their normal taxes. But when new taxes came in, it stressed the folks who were just trying to get by. And in the ancient world, if you didn't pay your taxes, the tax collector would come back with a couple of, let's say, friends. 
So the options were to have your property seized by governmental authority or go into debt. Take out loans in order to pay your taxes and to provide for your family. But debt in the ancient world was even more insidious than it is now. And how many people, even in our world, are held back by massive amounts of debt? So if the local ruler announces a building campaign, it's possible that you, as a local farmer, would have to go into debt to pay your new taxes. And then you have to pay interest on that debt, which oftentimes was massive. There was no Fed back then. And so you work and you work to pay it off, but you have to provide for your family, you have to pay your debt and pay your taxes, and unless a miracle occurred, families found themselves unable to pay their debts back. So the creditor would foreclose on the family and seize the land. And then potentially force that family to work for them to continue living in their own home and working their own land. In the ancient world, more often than not, debt led to indentured servitude. And so there's this cycle that occurs in the ancient economy of a local ruler calling for a public work building project, levying new taxes to pay for the project, which meant peasants took out loans to pay the new taxes, which led to their indentured servitude. Now, who does this system benefit? Wealthy elites, the local feudal lords who support a ruler needed so that the local ruler wouldn't find himself challenged. So if you're King Herod or if you're Philip II and you want to consolidate your power and authority, you need to keep your nobles happy. And what keeps them happy? building projects that end up with the nobles owning more and more land through debt and foreclosure. And here's the thing. This didn't happen in one particular city in one particular place. This happened all over Roman-controlled Israel. After Herod died, one of his other sons, Herod Antipas, gained control of the land around the Galilee, as well as a province on the western bank of the Jordan River a little further south. It was a bit of a slight to Herod Antipas, as his two areas did not touch and were mostly rural areas, so unlikely to create a large amount of wealth. And it had no large cities or administration centers. But Herod Antipas had learned a great deal from his father, and he underwent a number of building campaigns in the Galilee area. He rebuilt the ruined city of Sephoris and turned it into an administrative center. He spared no expense in rebuilding this city. He made massive capital improvements to another city, Tiberius. Once again, these building projects had massive economic impact on the surrounding village communities, villages like Cana and Joppa and Nain and Nazareth. And if some of these places sound familiar, it's because this is where Jesus grew up and the first places he began his public ministry. Villagers in these areas were subject to Antipas's massive taxation. It's said that Antipas collected 200 talents a year in taxes, which is nine tons of gold from subsistence level working poor families. So all across the lands and regions of Israel-Palestine, the working poor were being crushed by a collusion system between Roman-installed rulers and wealthy elites. When we read Jesus' teachings, how he came out against the practices of the Pharisees and Sadducees, there is often an economic element to what is going on in the story. It's not the only element, but it is there. And I bring this all the 
for two reasons. One, when we understand the economics of the first century, we see that Jesus is speaking to real people and addressing their real concerns. This gospel is a lived-in thing. It's not a fairy tale, it's not a story, it's not fiction. Jesus is speaking to real people about the real struggles of their real life in a way that we can validate through history. And two, it tells us there was a lot of social upheaval that was happening at this time. And indeed, there were other leaders of other movements who stepped into this time of deep hurt and pain and desire for change. It's why Jesus can go to Caesarea Philippi and say, who do these people think that I am? And can receive different answers. There were some who saw him as an outsider-type prophet. There were some who saw him in line with the prophets of history. But it's more than that. Is Jesus coming as a religious reformer trying to reform the temple and the synagogue? Is Jesus coming as a political reformer to call out the local rulers on the ways they are abusing their position and using their power to crush those whom they were sent to protect? Is Jesus coming to prophesy about Israel's impending freedom and independence and, to, and sent to see that vision become a reality? Who is Jesus and what is his mission? What goes unsaid in the gospel, but what is present in the history, is that during the first centuries, there were others claiming to be prophets and messiahs who embodied those different ways of being. After King Herod died, there was a massive uprising in Jerusalem. It was put down by the Romans, but the impact was to inspire messianic uprisings in the surrounding countryside. In Perea, on the eastern bank of the Jordan, a former slave named Simon rose up, declared himself king of the Jews, and began raiding palaces and plantations belonging to Herod's family. In Judea, a shepherd named Athanges, which is absolutely how you pronounce it, declared himself the new David, and with a band of followers began attacking the Romans and raided other property of Herod's family. Additionally, in Galilee, a man named Judah, who was the son of a Galilean bandit chief, attacked the administrative capital of Sepphoris. All of these revolts were soundly defeated by the Romans, and their leaders were executed. Perhaps the best-known failed messiah was Simon bar Kokhba, who led a revolution in 132 AD, a century after Jesus. Seventy years prior, there had been a Jewish revolt that led to the destruction of the temple in 70-ish AD. For the next couple of generations, tensions continued to run high between the Israelites and the Romans. In 132, Simon bar Kokhba led a revolt starting in central Judea and extending out into the countryside. His was the most successful military uprising, and he was able to gain control of a significant portion of land in and around the ruined city of Jerusalem. In fact, he was even able to set up an independent Jewish state. As such, his followers proclaimed that he was the Messiah, again, a century after Jesus. His followers proclaimed he was the Messiah, the person sent to free Israel from their Roman overlords. He established the independent Israelite nation. He was the prince who was promised. Though he had success initially in driving the Romans out of Judea, eventually the Romans came back. They always do. They came back with a huge army this time. Emperor Hadrian sent a massive force into Judea, and Bar Kokhba and his supporters were crushed. Bar Kokhba was killed, 
Some say by a snake bite, some say by natural causes during a siege, some say he was killed by the temple authorities. He wouldn't have been the first to be stabbed in the back by the temple authorities. <laughs> but either way, he was killed and his revolt ended. And the Romans took massive steps to see that another revolt would never happen again. So we could go on and on about different messianic movements that were happening during the time of Jesus, but we'd be here all day, and I know some folks want to get home for the bracket reveal. But here's the question. Here's the important question. After 15 minutes of Maddie's history hour. Does knowing Jesus wasn't the only person to either claim to be or be called the Messiah weaken or lessen our understanding of Jesus as Messiah? Or put another way, does people calling other people the Messiah change in any way? Peter's declaration that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. For me, the answer is no. Instead, it clarifies what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. It enhances it, really. And it enhances it precisely in the way that Jesus was different from many of the other messiahs we've talked about. Many of the messianic figures of the first centuries had at their basic, uh, had at their basic a logic that said, we must defeat the Romans in order to save ourselves. That salvation would come through the sword. Their salvation would come in wrenching power away from, a power, from the powerful and in wielding that power. They wanted to defeat someone, namely the Romans, and the local puppet governors the Romans appointed. Jesus' way to victory, Jesus' way to salvation, was through something else entirely. Jesus made enemies, something we will talk about next week. Jesus wasn't passive. Jesus didn't turn a blind eye to the sins and exploits of his day. However, the way he embodied his being the Messiah was not through seeking out power. It wasn't through violence. It wasn't through conquest. It wasn't through coercion. It wasn't through seeking one group's victory and another's defeat. Instead, Jesus was the Messiah through giving of himself. When he came to Jerusalem, he came not to conquer. He came to die. When his disciples attempted to fight the Romans who came to arrest Jesus, Jesus told them to put their swords away. He was not going to come and forcibly take power. He wasn't interested in forcibly ensuring his own security at the expense of others. He wasn't going to base his kingdom on tyranny. Instead, Jesus' messiahship was based on self-giving and faith. Jesus gave of himself. Jesus gave up himself because he had faith that God would be his vindication. He had faith that God was doing something in this world and had faith that God would see that through. And if Jesus trusted in what God was doing in the world, Jesus had nothing to fear from giving of himself or giving up himself. Jesus didn't have to drive the Romans out. That wasn't God's priority. Jesus didn't have to raid the palaces of Herod. That wasn't God's priority. Jesus needed to witness to the things that were God's priority. Loving God, loving each other. And in giving of himself, in giving up himself, Jesus witnessed to God's priorities. And here we are, nearly 2,000 years later, and all of us have heard of Jesus. We come here, we come to a place on Sunday morning, claiming Jesus was the Messiah, to worship Jesus as the Messiah. You've probably never heard of the former slave Simon, or the shepherd Anthrongus, 
of branches. That's it. Many of you haven't heard of Garkopfa Hoda, unless you're like a Jeopardy wizard. <laughs> but we all know the name Jesus. That name still has power. We constantly face the choice between violence and coercion and control, or self-giving and submission and faith. History is littered with forgotten names who chose the former. Jesus chose the latter. As Christians, as followers of Christ, as followers of Jesus, we are called to witness to the way of our Messiah. This week, this month, this season, how can you witness to the ways of our Messiah? Let us pray. Almighty and all of God, in a world of seeming